and obey and be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I miss some of you guys. Hopefully you're doing well and recovering quickly. Uh, I am thankful for technology. There's nothing like being here in the room, but we know we live in crazy times, but also the Lord's provided so much that people could still listen and be a part of the family, even though they got to take a week out to recover uh, from sickness and whatnot. But go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts 8, 9 through 21. This will be part one of a basically a two-part message on what does it mean to be truly saved. Today, we're going to look at the negative. We're going to look at Simon's life today and really look at the first false convert in the, what you call maybe the, the first church. There's a lot of firsts, right? There, there were first, there were salvations. There was the first martyr we saw a couple weeks ago. And now we'll see the first false convert. You know, this, this year, I think a lot of you know, this, well, this last year, 2020, I keep saying this year, we thankfully are in 2021. Not that that means anything to God, that it's a changing of the calendar, but I believe that, you know, we've had some really tough times, obviously, uh, starting with the pandemic, uh, just people being sick, you know, and people dying from it, uh, and we don't want any of that. I mean, it's all bad. It's, it's not of God, but God has used it. But some pretty crazy things came out of the pandemic. Of course, you know that. Um, one of them being you can't meet in churches. Uh, another one, you can't sing. Um, in some places, perhaps, maybe what we were doing even this morning of singing uh, to one another uh, really is what we do. The Bible says to sing to one another. The Bible does say in Hebrews 10, 25, to meet. But now there's more restrictions and even more so to come. I would, if I were you, I would probably more gear up for more restrictions than maybe less in the coming years. Unfortunately, that's the day and age we live in. Then we turn the corner from the... uh, pandemic in March and April and May, and then we realized we had uh, a racial conflict. I mean, these have been going on for years. Even before America, there's always been a racism, which is evil, and the Bible calls that sin. And the Bible also says something interesting that, you know, in Ephesians 2, that we're one man. There's only really one race in Adam. We're all in Adam, but there's different ethnicities and different cultures. And then we got to see the utter destruction of cities. We got to see Target being ransacked on television. We got to see uh, people literally destroying our country all in the name of social justice. And whilst racism is wrong, social justice is not of God in the sense that it comes from philosophies of the world. And then we realize we have another wave of craziness, which is towards the fall. If you were living, you'd totally understand what I'm going to say next, the election. And 
whether you believe it was rigged or whatever, it really doesn't matter. I believe more in the sovereignty of God than anything else. And I think that, you know, on the truth side of things, America just got what they asked for. So in one sense, righteousness, we are trying, we, are, we were, I mean, as a church, I think we were trying to stand for righteousness, but ultimately we lost. And I think that it would be wise to probably say that we're going to head into more perilous times. I'd say that we are going to have more restrictions and more control, and I, I, I think that is coming. But the church is glorious when that happens. It really is. And I actually believe that, okay? I, I, I'm not just trying to be, trying to, you know, pull someone's chain. I'm not trying to get you all wild up emotionally. I actually really do believe that the church actually does better in times like this. It becomes so clear. It, it, it's it's going to be so, it is so clear now, black and white. I love that. I think that's glorious, actually. Because before, I think there are, you know, when things are good, when the economy's great, when people are living their life, I think you, you see a weakening of the church. And now I, I believe the church is, it's, it's, you know, in one sense, the world got what they wanted, but the church is getting what we want. In a sense that our prayers are being answered, we've always prayed for a glorious, strong church. I believe it's coming. But I do also believe that there is going to be the great apostasy. I do think that in times to come, there will be more and more of probably friends and family. I mean, Jesus said he wasn't going to pull a sword between the believer and the non-believer. In a sense that where it's clear, he, he didn't say something along the lines of, hey, I'm bringing a sword between you and your coworker who you know is not saved. He said, no, 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 no. I'm putting a sword between you and your father, between you and your mother, between uh, uh, you and your mother-in-law. Father, you get the picture, between you and the people that are the closest to you. Uh, by the way, this is Jesus talking, uh, that that is what is going to happen in the coming days. In other words, I think the Christians have gotten so used to just this political nicism, just be nice, and we know that that's truth. Well, that isn't truth. When, we begin to, when churches begin to speak the truth, I think, it, I think people will get antsy and begin to complain because all of a sudden it looks like you're not loving. And how many times over the course of these, this last year in 2020 did we re, need to redefine what love is? It's almost as if the, somebody in the White House took the Bible and brought it in their world. And all we're saying is like, give me that Bible back so I can rightly interpret love. And that really is what the what we're dealing with today is we're having to redefine the most simplest of terms. What is truth? You know, Pilate asked that. What is truth to Jesus? I think we're asking the same question. What is love? What is truth? And as you see a deterioration of a culture around us, we're gonna see, as it says in Isaiah 60, that although darkness gets darker, the, lighter, the light will get lighter. 
I do believe that the church is going to have its finest days ahead, just as it was in church history. That every year, or well, every season or time in church history, whether you're talking about the patristic times of the early church fathers to medieval times to then you get into Reformation, the Puritans and the Great Awakening, every season of church history, they were always fighting for truth against all the heresies and the things that would come into the church. There's no different today. The only problem is, do we really know God? I think the, the, the biggest question that you need to ask is not whether this country is going to uh, make a turn or it's going to get more comfortable for you, but do you know him? Do you actually know the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings? Do you really know this Jesus, as it says in Revelation, that he's got eyes like a laser beam and can see through all the facades of human beings right to the heart? This Jesus that has feet like bronze in Revelation 1. Do you know what that is? The whole uh, Old Testament, the sacrifices, the tools would be covered with bronze and meant a sign, a sign of judgment. Jesus' feet represent judgment. His eyes represent judgment. He represents him looking into the eyes and the heart and into the eyes of your hearts and looking into man where no one else in this room can look into. And then he has the rod, which he will literally crush his enemies. I'd say the question today, really, as we get into Acts 8 is, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that if indeed the, the world were end today or Jesus were to come back, would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he say, as it says in Matthew 7, 21, he says that, you know, people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, you know, I did all these religious things. And these aren't just like opening a door for somebody. I mean, that's the weakest. <laughs> he starts with the strongest of arguments. You know what he says? He says, I did miracles in your name. I prophesied. When's the last time you prophesied and got it right? It's a pretty high calling. It says, I did miracles and prophecy, healings. They were in. They thought they were in. And then all of a sudden he said, depart from me, I never knew you, those who practice sin. And I think that today's message, although it's hard, I think is good because, you know, Paul said in Acts 20, he said something really interesting. He said that I desire to preach the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? I don't get to, as a, as a preacher or as a leader, I don't get to pick and choose what I like as if, as if I had a Jefferson Bible who just cuts out things that are not so maybe pleasing to culture or to my own, my, my own feelings. That God has called us to preach truth in today in a, in a pluralistic world. That is hard, right? But here's what we learned last week, which I thought was, if you missed this point, I'll, I'll reiterate it again. That although Peter and John were persecuted 
Stephen then persecuted. He was not the apostles. He was a lower uh, you know, leader in a sense. He was the highest. He was an apostle. He was a, he was a pastor in a sense. He was an evangelist. He got persecuted and stoned. And then from there, the people did. And what I would say is that in the coming days, a lot of times we're like, oh, well, if I'm a super Christian or a leader, then I'll get picked on. Can I just say that we all will? We all will be persecuted. We all lose in this life. We all get persecuted. We are all actually suffer for righteousness for his sake. And though that is maybe bad news to the flesh, it's incredibly glorious to the spirit. That's what God has called us to encourage one another. That's why we must sing. It's, it's silly how the government said, don't sing, we'll sing. Don't meet, we'll meet. Why? Because we died. When Jesus came, he did not only, see there's three deaths in one sense in the Christian life. There's the death of a savior, Jesus, who is a substitutionary atonement for us. That means we should have died on that cross. We should have gone into hell. We should have actually suffered for all of eternity for our sins. But the reality is Jesus actually took our place. That is biblical Christianity. That's the first death. That's the, de- that's the death of a, of, a, of a righteous one. But then there's also the death. That's the death of our sinful nature. We died. But then there's also a death to our flesh. Let any man come unto me, let him die. Let him deny himself. Come, un- come to me and deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. What I'm saying is that there's also another death. There's the spiritual, there's the, there's the, there's the first death, but then there's also the second death, which all of us have to choose to do. That's a part of our sanctification that we're continually dying. But how many know that we're, we are approaching the physical death? But then there's life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. What that actually means is, hey, if I'm living, I'm living for the glory of God. I want to help as many people get there as possible. But also, it's great gain if I do die. I, you can make an argument the whole Christian life is about death. <laughs> and I'm able to come to church on Sunday and I'm able to preach truth and we're able to go to life group on Tuesday night or whatever night you go on and able to preach truth in the workplace and go to the pub on Friday nights. We're able to do that because as people, we have died to ourselves. We no longer live to ourselves but we live for him. But wherever the gospel is preached, I think you know this, if you probably realize this, whether you're preaching the gospel on campus or in Sweden or in Japan or wherever we've been, is that there's genuine faith and false faith. There's the branches that abide in the vine and those who are cut off and burned. There's those who persevere in faith and those who shrink back. Those who are the wheat and those who are the tares. And we have to know that in every church, there's always wheat and there's always tares. In fact, if we zealously try to take out every tear, Jesus said, you'll actually hurt the wheat. So in other words, it's not our job, but all of us, later on, the angels will come and they will do their thing and separate wheat and tares. That's not our job. 
but they're there. And we saw that this year. We saw that there was wheat and there's tares, not just in our church, but in all the churches, church-wide, globally. We saw leaders fall, those are both who are alive and dead. We saw people who say they believe and trust God and, and live a life of righteousness begin to fall away. Read Matthew 7 again. People say, well, you can't judge. Well, Jesus said judge. The only caveat he said is make sure you're not judging and being zealous for the very sin that you're, that you're, you're dealing with. It's the same measuring stick. In other words, if I deal with envy and then I judge someone else with envy and I don't admit that I have envy, that's wrong. But he did say to judge. He did say to look at the tree and see if it has good fruit or bad fruit. That's another area where progressive Christians say that's not loving. (laughs) I've had people say step down from leadership because we weren't loving. They're always going to be here. (laughs) They're here. (laughs) They're in the church. And I will prove that today by Simon, that they're always amongst us. And I believe that I would... What I, what I want more than anything is for you to look actually like Jesus, Galatians 4.19. Paul's heart, his passion was, oh, I just want you to, I want to see Christ formed in the people. I just want to see that you look like Jesus, that you actually say the same things as him. You look like him in your character and your conduct and your speech, as Paul told Timothy. Be an example to the world. Don't be like them. Don't use the same philosophies and ways to even deal with world problems that the church has bit into that apple of secular philosophies to deal with big issues of today. We can't do that. We can't give into critical race theory. It's demonic. Clearly. We can't give into the world's philosophies. It will hurt us. It is the Trojan horse today. You let that thing into the church, it will ransack this thing, and you'll never get it back. I promise. That's why we need to stand and contend and fight for the faith, as it says in Jude 3, because it is not my truth. It says it was a long line of truth given by the what? Apostles. And even before that, the Old Testament saints, the word of God is true. This is our manual, not alongside white fragility or not alongside white awake or whatever that stuff is. It is not the great awakening. We need a great awakening. That's what we need more than anything else. Amen? Someone's got to say it. I, I, you know, I, I, at some point, we have to actually believe the word. Because I, I, you know, I saw an eight-page church that I know of, eight pages of how to get more diversity in the church. False, 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 false. You might as well just had eight pages of blank and put the Bible on top. <laughs> I mean, if you really want, I, I, this, isn't, this isn't like rocket science here. 
okay? This is truth. And uh, you're in for a ride this morning because it, it is, uh, it, it's, it's going to be fun because truth sets us free. I mean, Jesus said that. We, he said it to the Pharisees and, and John 8. He, he said something very interesting as he was arguing with the Pharisees and they were talking about truth and they ignorantly said, we are not in bondage. He says, no, you are in bondage. Your father is the devil and you are in bondage. And they thought, hey, we own this place. No, he's, God owns this place. That's who owns it. He does. Not the religious establishment. Not the White House. They could put roadblocks, 8,000 soldiers, 25,000 soldiers. There's still more angels in heaven. There's still more power from the throne. And that's who we follow. We follow him and him crucified. Well, resurrected. I love the resurrected Jesus. Read Revelation. It actually says there's a blessing that comes when you read that book. Unfortunately, people are scared to read it. And I think that's the devil's ploy to teach you not to read it. Read it. With the lights off, with a flashlight at midnight. (laughs) And I'm talking about Revelation 6 through 19. Those are the best. But the seed falls on the good and the bad soil. Matthew 13, 36, 43 says, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Is the devil. He sows. It's crazy how many times How many times have you spoken truth to your neighbor or whoever that neighbor might be? And all of a sudden they're like, hey, you walk away. They're hungry. They're like, wow, I never seen someone that hungry before. And then all of a sudden, a little bit later, three weeks, five weeks go by, perhaps sometimes even a day, and it's gone. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. You know, I hear all the time people saying, man, we just got to drain the swamp, you know, politically speaking. You know who's going to drain the swamp? The angels. They'll absolutely drain the swamp good. You won't find one problem, one person who hates, who destroys in heaven. What a wonderful thing. I think Christians, this is the glor- these are glorious times ahead because we, can act- we have more boldness to speak truth when it's clear. It's, it's like, hey, if you're gonna kill me, it's almost like I heard this the other day. I was watching something. And uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we actually just went over this in Acts 4 and 5. But uh, have you ever seen Vadi Bachman before? Uh, some of you guys have seen him. He's a great preacher. He's, he's at a conference in South Florida. He lives in Fort Myers. If you look some of his stuff up, it's good. But one of the things he's, he, was, he was going through the, this passage in Acts 4 and 
The first one, he said, he went through like three scenarios based on, hey, stop preaching the gospel. And the, the, the apostles were like, we, we have to continue. And he's like, well, I'm going to make things, first with threads, I'm going to make things really bad for you. I'm going to take everything away from you. And they would respond, we sold everything. We gave everything away. We don't have anything. <laughs> The second one uh, um, was, we're going to throw you in prison. You're going to be done. Oh, you mean the, the time when Peter went into prison and they were singing hymns and songs and, and then the angels busting them out? You mean that? Okay. <laughs> then the third one is, fine. If we can't take anything from you, throw you into prison, we'll kill you. We died already. <laughs> you can't kill a dead man. We've, we've died. You mean, oh, you mean the, the, the one that we're following, the one who went into the grave and came out of the grave? Because <laughs> that's what's going to happen to those who trust him. The reason why martyrs could read a book a long time ago in class called The Martyr's Grace traced many of the martyrs with 21 of them and looked at how the uh, martyrs died with such grace. Why did they die with such grace and such ease? They weren't fighting. They weren't punching. They weren't screaming. They died with such grace because they absolutely knew the truth that Jesus was real. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be on the other side when you die. You see, Contrary to what the world might say is they think they're winning. We lose here, we win there. They win here, they lose there. That's how it works. And that's what gives you confidence to understand that they might be winning, whoever they might be, non-believers, government, whatever it might be the enemy uses, they will lose. We win later. We lose now. We lose now. And I think if we don't understand that as a church, then we will storm the gates of the White House to try to get our way. Or storm the gates of your workplace because you're not getting what you want. We died already. So let's live for him. Let's trust Christ and him crucified. Let's trust in his resurrection that he will those who humble themselves will always be exalted. The way up is down and down is up. Those who go low will eventually go up. That's the way we fight. We fight with humility. We fight with honor. We fight with joy. We fight with grace. We fight with hunger of the scriptures. All right. Acts 8. Here we go. So Acts 8 verse 9. So what made... Simon, a false convert. I mean, we, you have to answer that question because you need to find out if you're there. There's four of them. We'll rattle through them. The first one is pride, but let me just read this. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. 
And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with magic arts. So the first one is pride. People saw him as great. In fact, he had such a low view of God and a high view of himself that ultimately is pride. Isaiah 64, he didn't understand. Simon did not understand. Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteousness, all of our righteousness deeds, or righteous deeds, I'm sorry, are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. My question is, do you believe that for yourself? Have you bought into the mega church kind of pragmatic idea, like the theology, that kind of teaching that there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to try a little bit harder. Jesus will help you become better. No, you're dead and he'll make you alive. It is not a better we're not in this thing. We're not trying to tell people, hey, if you get a little Jesus, try Christianity. We're not trying it out as if like I'm trying on something at Gap. It, it, my life is on the line. I'm dead without the help of God. 100%, not 99 to 1. Then I perish without his help. Romans 3, 10 to 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's not even one who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. Oh, just, you'll be used by God. You just, just come to church and you'll be used by God. No, they need to be saved first before they're used by him. In fact, it's ridiculous when I hear seeker-sensitive church as if, You can even seek God without God. Humans don't just wake up on their own saying, oh, I need a religion. I need God. Now, many of them are finding religion and religions are constantly changing, right? I mean, America just got a few more religions this year. (laughs) But there is no one who does good, not even what? One. Find them. Find the seekers. You'll find none. You know that's what makes salvation so glorious? You know, I'm not going to worship God if I find... It's hard for me to worship God, like up here. I don't care if Ricky's singing. I don't care if the, uh, the whole church is singing up here trying to get me to move with music, it's hard for me to worship if it's man-centered. It just doesn't, I mean, I'm provoked by the tune. I mean, that's what music does. I mean, we can be provoked by the tune. It's amazing when you're in a bad mood, turn on worship music, you're in a better mood, but maybe that doesn't mean anything. But man, when I realized that I was in my dorm room at 18 years old, just getting back from Los Angeles, and someone gave me a track with the gospel on it. And I realized that I didn't grab that track from somewhere because I wanted God. In fact, when I, someone gave me that track, I didn't want God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted my own life. Somebody 
through the sovereignty of God, gave me that track. I put it in my book bag and somehow it found itself on my dresser in college, kind of like just on my, just sitting there with nothing else around, just my Bible and this blue track hanging out. I put it now by my bedside, the same one, September of 2000. I know that I didn't pick that. And what causes me to worship is realizing, God, you sovereignly worked, providentially worked in my life, unbeknownst to me, and put this thing before me, opened up my heart, showed me my sin. I acknowledged it. He shared with me how he actually went to the cross, how he died, was buried, and rose again, and offers me life. Apart from the grace of God, I'd be still lost. I don't know where I'd be. But this is part of being saved is knowing the depths of your sin. He also was prideful, not only just having a high view of self, but he was also prideful because he was astonishing people with his magic. Now this magic came from the tradition of the Magi going back to the priests of the Medo-Persians. It was kind of like a mix of science, superstition, combining astrology, divination, occultic practices with history, mathematics, agriculture. Uh, it could be kind of like trickery, or, but it was all demonic. It was just from Satan. But you know, he saw Philip and he's thinking, huh, maybe I can gain something from this, Right? Have some of you come to Christ or to church because maybe I can, it, can, it can, can, can be a nice little add-on to my show, <laughs> right? You know, uh, it's interesting, Alyssa Childers, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, uh, she is a, a podcaster, she's incredible, she's got a great book called Another Gospel, but she had a woman on, on her podcast that was a, an ex-psychic and she was telling uh, people that how incredible it was to see that this stuff actually works. You know, sometimes they're like, oh, psychics, you know, they're, no, they're right. That's what makes it so appealing. <laughs> it, it makes it so appealing because people go there, they're desperate, they want to know their future, they want to know why the crazy things are happening in their life, so they're going, opening up a massive door that they probably won't get out, apart from the grace of God. And now they're sucked into this thing. And this woman said, oh, it was, this stuff is real. I mean, I, I predicted so many things, more than the so-called real prophets of the charismatic movement. I mean, their ratio with getting it right, I mean, it's probably like, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't say it. I, I won't do the math because I'm making it up anyways. But <laughs> the people in the front row that know me, they're like, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> Wisdom is vindicated by their children. So it says that, but people were, you know, also impressed by him. He had a following. In other words, this was, he understood that I have something secret. These are the beginning workings of what was called as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism didn't come till a little later, but they were, they were the beginnings. They're saying, I have something secret. 
I have something you don't have. And I want to keep it from you because it makes me feel good. You know, it makes you feel better. It makes you feel like there's some sort of hierarchical system. So you, you feel like uh, higher than other people because you have this special knowledge. It's Gnosticism, of course, is a heresy, but it finds itself in so many different sects of religion, it, it, of Christianity, I should say. It, they're, they're, it's actually um, more relevant than you think. Sometimes you see Gnosticism, you're like, oh, no, that's, that can't possibly touch me, but it, it can. Psalm 10.4 says this, the, the wicked in his haughtiness does not seek God. There is no God in his schemes. There's no God in his schemes. There was nothing in Simon that actually wanted God. He just wanted what he could offer. And that's the same today. Pride, unfortunately, uh, the will destroy us. It says in Daniel 4, 28, 33, it says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king began speaking and was saying, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? I just... Tell me if this sounds familiar. <laughs> While the word was still in the king's mouth, <laughs> he's still yapping. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with animals of the field, you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven and his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like the bird's claws. Narcissistic pride will be dealt with by the Lord. It won't last. Whether we find that in our leaders, our president, or whoever it might look like, it, it just, the reality is God will deal with pride. Job thirty-five twelve says, There they cry out, but he will not answer because of the pride of evil people. As people cry out because they don't like what they see, whatever it lo might look like, whether it's in the nation or your workplace, we tend to complain and grumble. But if it's done in a prideful heart, God simply won't answer. He's not obligated to. Psalm 12, 3 says, that May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, lying tongue. You know, we should pay attention to what God hates. Like, write that down. <laughs> this is what my creator and Lord says, do not do, and don't call that legalism. And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that, you know, by the way, you can include abortion in there. He hates abortion because I, I think it would be a fool 
to say that that baby can decide at that point to be killed. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. Watch that in our country. How fast they run to evil and how slow they move in to bring righteousness. A false witness who declares lies and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Yes, God hates things, certain things. He does. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before stumbling. Galatians, the last one. Galatians 6, 3, I love this. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. After all that, you're like, well, I'm not a prideful guy. And then you're like, okay, I am a prideful guy. <laughs> Left that one last on purpose. But you know what, though? You know, we can't just talk about pride without talking about humility. And this is what God does love. He loves humility. Luke 18, 9 through 14, I love this. Now he also, is Jesus, this is in the Gospels. Now he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This happens all the time. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying in this regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. You know, those swindlers, those crooked adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a day, twice a week, twice a day. <laughs> even more holy. <laughs> I pay tithes. I mean, I do Daniel fasts, not even twice a year. I mean, I do them like, I, 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 am, I do Daniel fasts every day, just so you all know. I pay tithes of all that I get, including birthday gifts. But the tax collector, standing in some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven because he wasn't looking at himself. He was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For whoever, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's clear, isn't it? It's clear who gives, you know, I, I saw something in my inbox. I, I, I sign up for everything. I have a junk mail. Just a, it's kind of like my news. And so I get to see all that's kind of going on because I don't have social media. And I'm not trying to be the Pharisee here, you know, also, and I don't have, you know, I just chose to get rid of it just for a number of reasons. But the, one of the things that I saw was someone from one of the, you know, big churches in, he's in Asia, Southeast Asia. Many of you know him, would know him. Uh, wears very fancy jackets and very wealthy man. But he said, you know, in the midst of all this chaos in this world, he said, hey, this, you're going to, you're going to receive favor. This is how you, these three different ways you can get favor. Favor's coming to you. 
I don't think so. Not by anything you're doing. The favor of the Lord comes to the humble. Not for the boastful. Not to sell books. To try to get in a, you know, more book sales. To say, hey, in the midst of chaos, here's a way, three different ways, or whatever different ways, you can find favor. The, the one who has the largest church in America, in Houston, Texas, also has another book out in 2020 about favor. But they're not telling you the truth. The only way to get favor is <laughs> beating your chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the only, I doubt they tell you that because that doesn't sell. Beat your chest. That's not selling. And of course, we know that's not physically. I mean, although you could if you want to. But he is saying, I can't even look at God. I can't just waltz right out of bed thinking, oh, the favor of the Lord is on me. No, the favor of the Lord is on God, on Jesus. The favor of the Lord is on me, he says, Isaiah 61. It's a God-centered faith. Not man-centered. They say, oh, the favor of the Lord is on you. (laughs) You're going to do all these amazing things. No, the favor of the Lord is on him. He does all these amazing things. That is Christianity. That is biblical Christianity. This is one I'm signing up for. The one that actually gives me hope when everything else is falling apart. So I'm trying to figure out, do I have favor or not favor? Do I have favor or not favor? Oh, this, oh, this happened. I got a flat tire. No favor. Got a, I got to this place. Favor. I got checks in the mail. I got favor. Prosperity gospel is damning to the soul and the heart, <laughs> the emotions. Matthew 18, two to four, it says, Jesus called a child to himself and set him among them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. James 4, 6 to 10, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God, opposed to the pro- God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil. You can't resist the devil without submitting to God. You have to submit to God first, and then by submitting to God, focusing on him, not the devil, then you resist the devil. Is it contrary to many charismatics who just yell at the devil all day long and not submitting to God? And he will flee from you. That's the way you, you get the enemy off your back is by submitting to God and his word and occupying yourself fully with him and his word. I, I mean, someone's like, well, what about the enemy? I don't know about the enemy. I know about God. <laughs> I know about God. I know about him and what he says. And by the way, the devil's here and God is here. God is God, and this is a fallen angel. They're not on the same playing field. Now, Michael is, and even Michael in Jude says, may the Lord rebuke you, Satan. In other words, the archangel, by the way, which none of us are more powerful than him, we don't just yell at the enemy. Lord, rebuke that voice as I look at you. That's biblical Christianity. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Some things feel so good to say. In other, you know. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. This is like 
the instruction to all of us, by the way, come to church and be miserable. <laughs> it's like, that just doesn't sell, does it? And mourn and weep <laughs> and let your laughter, actually, if you come in here laughing, let it be turned into mourning <laughs> and your joy to gloom. <laughs> this is from the Bible. <laughs> Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, I, I don't think for one bit God wants us to be miserable. Not one bit do I believe that. That's a distortion of this passage. Can, I say, can we say God wants us to be happy? Yes, with the right things. In him. In him. All right, well... We need to be aware of our inadequacies. We do. We need to sense our lostness. We need to be, as it says in Matthew 5, 3, we need to be poor in spirit, which means spiritually bankrupt, which means knowing our need. And those who God honors are a humble and contrite heart. Number two is he missed the true meaning of selfishness. I'm sorry, let me say that again. The first one is that the uh, kind of a sign of a false convert, so to speak, is, is pride, not recognizing sin. But, and then number two is that he missed the true meaning of salvation. He was in it for the external benefits. I'll say this in verse 12. Peter, uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Philip did uh, preach the gospel and he did supposedly get saved. So I'll say this. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. So there was something, I mean, the great thing is that Philip did obey Acts 1.8, Jesus' command, even though Philip wasn't there, he came later, that you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we're getting, we're progressing along, and we're seeing this unfold, this plan of salvation. So, uh, so Philip was there preaching, Simon uh, believes himself, it says here in verse 13, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And I think that it is possible for us to be baptized, to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, to be a false convert and consistently and continually be amazed by God and the things of God. if, If that's not a scary thought, I don't know what is. The reality that we could go to conferences and and we can sit here in church and we can hear this stuff over and over and over again, but the reality is not really even be truly converted. But then also look back and say, well, I, I do like the things of God. I think that is a quality of salvation. Well, we're looking here that he was constantly amazed at the things of God and he lusted after them and he wanted them. You know, also, not only was he amazed, you could write these two things down, he was amazed with miracles. There is an obsession with miracles today. And we see that because the charismatic movement is growing leaps and bounds with people being obsessed with the things of God rather than God himself. So there's an obsession with miracles, and I don't doubt that they happen. I believe miracles do happen. But I think more, there's probably more providence of God happening than miracles. 
Providence is a miracle in itself in a sense that he works all things together for your good. Miracle means that supernaturally has to come in and invade the natural world so that there's a clear clear picture of God coming in and changing something that is natural to supernatural. Like, I mean, and I do believe people do get healed. I, I believe all that stuff. But for the sake of the text, this man was after the miracles and after the power. So he's after the miracles and he's after the power, number two, or sub point two, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. So the, the reality is that his, when he saw Philip, he was thinking, wow, that guy's pretty cool. I mean, you know, it is pretty awesome. But when Peter and, James, or Peter and John got there, <laughs> went to a whole nother level. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, my following is beginning to dwindle. You know, it's a far cry from what John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. You know, and Simon also sticks with this leader, Philip, because he, he get, begins to observe and begins to follow him, begins to walk with him. It's not like he says he's following Jesus, begins to follow Philip. It was not necessarily bad. But isn't it interesting? How many times have you heard, hey, if you want to do these same things, these power thing, powerful things, just come up to the front and get impartation. If you want to see an altar call like you've never seen before, just do some miraculous thing on stage and you'll have, you'll have thousands of people just wanting to touch you or for you to touch them, for them to touch you so that you'll also receive the power. And so it wasn't necessarily his own desire to be with Jesus as much as it was, I want this power. And guys, if I'm not just talking about some movement that we're not in. This happens all the time. This is how envy begins to happen. When we desire somebody else's life. I was reading the early church fathers even this week. And one of the things they said, uh, uh, you know, the seven deadly sins, you know, if you've heard that before, but they, they put the first one, you know, the first of the seven deadly sins, they, they make an argument that the number one is envy. Because as soon as you envy, you'll eventually get to murder. That's what happened with the Pharisees. They envied Jesus. They only wished they could have that kind of power. They weren't willing to come to him on Jesus's terms, realizing they were sinful and needing a savior if they could only just tap into that kind of power, they'd even have more. And aren't the corrupt always looking for more power? That's pragmatic salvation at its finest. I want to be in this church because it looks awesome. looks like people are friends and I want to be friends. But all of a sudden you get into the church and realizing that friend circle is closed. not because anyone closed it. But by the providence of God, for whatever reason, you can't get in. And then you realize, why did I even come here? And then you realize, what did I even sign up for? You can idolize friendship. You can idolize 
the benefits. I go to this church because they meet. I go to this church because they're doing what I like. Suits my fancy. Makes me feel good. That still isn't cutting it, is it? At least that's not, not what I, that's not what I see. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a what? New creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Do you want to know what it means to be a Christian? Is to be transformed. If you want to know if you're saved, you are transformed. You think differently. You don't think like the world does anymore. You don't have the same passions and lusts and envy like you used to. You desire God more than the world. You begin to cut off things from your life. You begin to get rid of things that don't matter. You actually says in Hebrews 12 that you cut away things that they're the entanglements, the things that slow you down. You're fine with letting that go. You're fine with letting that relationship go. You're fine with letting that device or vice go because you want him. James 2, 14, 17 and 19 says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Even so, if it has no works, it is dead because even by itself, but someone may as well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Even the demons have faith, but are not saved. John 2, 23 to 25, and let this be said of all of us, is now when he was in Jerusalem, this is how Jesus looks on the earth. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. Beholding his signs, what he was doing. I mean, he was, he, they were like, I'm in. This is right after the wedding at Cana, by the way. I mean, I'm sure any of you, any of one of us would follow someone who turns water into wine, especially if you like wine. In a desperate situation. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone (laughs) to bear witness, oh, I just want to help Jesus out and make him known. He doesn't need your help. Anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, that's not a luxury we have. We don't know what's in the heart of man. You can't just judge someone's motives. You can judge their actions and assume, but you got to be careful with that. But Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. So he knew Simon believed the signs, but not the one whose power was behind them. He also believed in the gifts, but not the giver. And true profession of faith, guys, is not some sort of ritual act. It's not some sort of, you don't just look back at your salvation and say, well, I prayed some prayer and I've done some sort of ritual. I got baptized right after service versus five days later or whatever. You, it's not, it doesn't work that way. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That is what it means to be saved. You're new. You could literally look back at your life and say, there was something radically different about my life 
then and as it is now, there's something radically different. I was, it was then and now and will be. And even maybe some of you young guys, you know, some of the under 18 crowd, don't just bank on your parents' faith. I'm not trying to cast doubt. I'm just saying it's got to be your own. It has to be your own faith. It has to be genuine, real, and there's fruit as a result of it. Jesus knows all things. Number three, we're just quickly moving, okay? We only have two more. I usually, I'm more on the intros and then I kind of, but this, this is the last, the last bigger point and then hopefully, okay, fine. <laughs> it's just, I was hoping I get a little help. A little help. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so verse 14 uh, and then we'll, number three, he misunderstood the role of the Holy Spirit, and this is key. This is a big deal. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent him Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them, any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Now, when I was looking up this, I thought it was interesting that J.B. Phillips' rendering of this is to hell with your money. That's what really Peter said to him. To hell with your money. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. I, I want to just say this. I, I want to clear up some theological issue and then move on to the next point. But I, I think it is important to at least pause for a second because I hadn't looked at this since Acts 2. Acts 2 was a time when the Holy Spirit came and he began to come on them and people as a, as a manifestation of them having the Holy Spirit was salvation, because no man can be saved without the Holy Spirit. But for the sake of growing the church, they all began to speak in tongues. For the sake of the people that were all coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost, because there was many different languages there, and they needed to hear the gospel in their own native language. Now, I suppose God could have used an interpreter and, and all that, but he just said, the heck with the interpreters. Just, <laughs> I'll give you the languages and you just share the gospel, and everyone would hear. For whatever reason, God wanted to continue to use this manifestation to bring the church together. Now, in Acts 2, it was with the Jews. He saved the Jews. Now listen, so you get this. He was with the Jews. He, he, they, they manifested, and they realized, oh, they're a part of this family. It's not just the disciples that have this in with Jesus. 
but also the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They also have this experience. And now in Acts 8, the Samaritans do. Now the Samaritans were a, a mixed bag of religion. I mean, they were, they, they were, there was a problem with the Samaritans and the Jews, and I've shared with that before. So God wanted to unify the Jews and the Samaritans. Third, which we'll get into later in Acts 10, the Gentiles, they have the exact same experience. Same. And then the nations in Ephesus in Acts 19, that's important. Why? Because God wants one church. One church. If You see, if God did not allow that to happen, there would have been major discrepancy between the Jews and Samaritans. So what did they do? They sent down the apostles from the hub. So Jerusalem council, there was... This is, in, this is important, okay? Hang with me. We talk so much about unity today. God is sharing with us his heart for unity, for the nations, for people that are different than the Jews. Let this church never, ever, 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 what? Ever be accused of racism. It is sinful. God wanted one church, as he said in Ephesians. I'm sure when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was probably thinking of the Acts 19 experience that where he broke the dividing line between Jews and Gentiles to unify them as one man together as the church. Something that I had prayed through and God gave me a long time ago. He said, when you lift up Jesus, the room will get colorful. Just lift him up. Preach the truth. So it's... Even though the charismatics are obsessed with speaking in tongues, more likely really gibberish, it's not really a tongue. The reason why there's, there's, there, there are people that are obsessed with speaking in tongues, but they totally miss the point. The point is, if I'm Jewish and I just got saved, I just got a red shirt. Then all of a sudden I come along, this guy, who's my son, Caleb, and all of a sudden, I realize, oh, this guy is a Samaritan. In God's wisdom, he said, you get a red shirt. And then all of a sudden, he goes over here. And then in, in the time of the Gentiles, in the, uh, which we're going to see in Cornelius, right? So this Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. He says, here's a red shirt. And then in Acts 19, which is, are you following it? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Brilliance of God. The brilliance of God of unifying his church. What did he do with the Ephesians? Oh, I just know of this baptism. Well, now you know of this baptism, the Holy Spirit. Boom, there it is. They got a red shirt. And now all of them understand we're part of one church. One church. While the tongues continually divide churches, the tongues were actually supposed to unite churches. God could have picked anything. He could have literally said, 
I'm going to play a joke on every man in, hum- in humanity. I'm just going to put the, 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 the tongue on people's heads and just leave it there. And everybody who's a part of the church will have this tongue on the top of their head. I mean, you could have picked anything. We're not God. I don't understand what he, why he picked this particular manifestation. But as you read through the church, if you read through church history, which a lot of people do not, but I encourage you to, all say the same thing from 100 AD or probably even 70 AD all the way through until 1900, where they made a big deal out of it, which I'm not going to go through that whole, that whole deal. But all the way through till now, they understood, they understood that it was to unify the church. Now, I know, guys, that may be a long way of trying to explain it. There's so much more, and we can maybe do that during one of the after hours at 2 p.m. sometime to go more in depth with that. And I'd love to take you through that. But I want you to see God's heart with this, that this man, Simon, was trying to buy something. But God was saying, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this to, to save my church and to bring them as one. What brilliance, what love of God, what love of God that he says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Amen. What an amazing, loving God we serve. That he said, you will know without a doubt that you are one church. And this guy was saying, I can take advantage of this unifying efforts for my own purposes. And Peter said, to hell with your money. There are many people in primarily the charismatic movement and extreme selling people something that simply doesn't work imparting stuff to people to innocent playing on people's weakness and it just doesn't work these gifts are free isaiah 55 one says everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost it is free it is free Last but not least, and then we'll have the band come up here. He misunderstood sin and true repentance. Peter called Simon to repent here. Verse 22 says, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven of you. For I see that you are in the goal of bitterness, which just means distasteful condition He's saying, look, you're in this gall of bitterness and envy and in the bondage of iniquity. In other words, he's saying, if you bite into this, because you bought into this, Simon, it's gonna get worse. And how many of you know that, that once we open the door to sin, it gets worse. It could get to the point where it could get to bondage. And Proverbs 5.22 is the setting of adultery. But he says, in his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of sin. In other words, Peter was saying, look, if you don't repent now when it's fresh, you're gonna go deeper into this thing. And I don't want that to happen. And his response was this, 
But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord. He didn't even know the Lord. Pray to this Lord. You ever hear people say that? They don't even know God. They're like, can you pray to your God? And which is fine. I mean, we pray and we pray for them. It's, I mean, but just that's kind of what it feels like. He's just saying, you pray to your God for me, for yourself, so that nothing of what you have said might come upon me. He didn't repent. He was just scared of the consequences. And I'll tell you, that is such a deception in the church today that we don't want to repent because we're offense to God and it hurts people. We want to repent a lot of times, which is no repentance, by the way, because we're afraid of the consequences. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow, listen, that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Simon was a false convert. There's no doubt. As you look at the early church fathers, Justin Martin, Justin Martin. (laughs) Justin Martin, you are now an early church father. Justin Martyr from 100 to 165 AD. He mentions that the birthplace uh, was, uh, he he mentioned that there's there's a, where, where was it? It was in Rome. There's a statue basically of this man and, he was deemed a heretic. Uh, he was, he, people knew, church history knew that they knew what it meant to be saved and what it meant to be a false convert. And they knew that this man was. A lot of people would probably say, well, maybe he repented. You don't know. And we don't know. We don't know in that sense. Only God does know. But there's enough evidence to say this man wasn't. R.C. Sproul says this. Notice that, we're going to close here. Notice that Simon does not say, pray to the Lord for me that I may be converted and have true faith and be redeemed. Simon was concerned with escaping punishment, which is also not saving faith. There is a distinction between repentance, between contrition and attrition. Contrition is true repentance that comes from a heart broken for the things, for having offended God. Attrition occurs when one repents only because there is a sword to one's neck which is the kind of repentance we find in the Old Testament with Esau. He went with tears, but it was of no avail. No one can repent just to get a ticket out of hell. A true act of contrition, true repentance, does give you a ticket out of hell, but it, if what motivates you is simply the escape of punishment, that is not saving faith. All right, well, I know that wasn't easy, but the church is for Christians. Now, if you don't know God, this is a perfect place to find out who he is. But make no mistake, the way we run our church is geared towards the Christian. And what that means is we make decisions based on them, not the non-believer. In other words, non-believers can't come in here and tell us how to run our church. They have no say in the church. 
And I think that is important in the days to come, I may be prophetically saying that because there's going to come a day where people are just going to ransack the church and try to twist it in the way they want it to function to make them feel better. But the church isn't for non-believers. It's for the church. Contrary to what one megachurch hipster said, if you get born again today, don't come tomorrow because this church isn't for you. Quote, end quote. If I told you, you would know exactly who that man is. What? (laughs) Don't come back to church if you got saved today? What kind of foolish thing is that? We need to pray for the church in America. We need to pray for them. I think there's pastors suffering and caving all over. Pray for me. I need your prayers in this season. I need it more than ever. I mean, yeah, I need your criticism and comments and all the above, and I want to grow, but I need your prayers. God, that John would remain true, that the elders would remain unified and true, and may the staff continue to stand for righteousness in a day that there's Trojan horses being wheeled into every church in America. They want to ransack it, turn it upside down with a deconstruction mindset so that what? There's always got to be a leader, guys. There's always got to be one on the throne. You deconstruct so that you can what? Rebuild it their way. Jesus is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's on the throne. We never have to worry or fear, but I do believe that we have weakness. We're weak. We're not as strong as we think we are. I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not going to stand up here and say, hey, look, I'm, I got it all together and all that stuff. And I'm not saying I got to get it all together in some wishy-washy, weird, pragmatic way. I'm saying I don't have it all together because I'm a sinner. And I need this book every day of my life. I need to be renewed every day, as Paul said, so that I can actually bring the right kind of worship. Worship that's pleasing to him. Thomas Shepard, a Puritan in 1605, 1649, says this in his book, The Secret or The Sincere Convert. They have no experiential knowledge of a better estate. A wife who knows her husband's love and character mourns when he must be gone on a journey. But sinners do not shed a tear that God is absent from them. Why? They have, when he must be gone on, I'm sorry, they have never tasted the sweetness of his presence. That's what Jonathan Edwards was always saying, sweetness, sweetness, sweetness. Have you tasted the sweetness of being in fellowship with Jesus? That is a sure sign of salvation. It's not just feelings, but a faith with no feelings is probably not a genuine faith at all. It is strange to see men take more satisfaction in their cups and cards, it's a little dated, pots and pipes, dogs and hawks, than in the fellowship of God and Christ in word and in prayer and in meditation 
which ordinances are burdens and a prison to them. Oh, this isn't a prison. This is a delight to walk with Jesus. What is the reason of it? Is there no more sweetness in the presence of God smiling in Christ than in a prostitute? Yes, but they know the worth, the sweetness, the satisfying goodness of God. May we taste that, church. In the times to come, may we have more increasing sweetness and fellowship with God in these days, more than anything else. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for myself. I pray for our family. God, that we would have the sweetness